all get to heaven. If you have your copy of God's Word, I would love for you to turn to the book of Mark as we continue our journey through this wonderful gospel. Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27. Today I want to talk to you about the confidence we can have in the power of God's Word. Because it's very important for us to know that. So to give you some context, we're still on Wednesday of Passion Week, okay? Two days, Jesus will be on the cross. He will be dead in two days, and he knows it. And he's confident it will gain forgiveness for humanity because he trusts God's power and he trusts God's word. So Jesus is still in the temple courts. He's been there all day pretty much. He's getting challenged by six specific groups. If you haven't kept up, I can give them to you. The scribes, the Pharisees, the elders, the chief priests, the Herodians, and now we're going to see the Sadducees. So that's who's coming today. They're a very eccentric group, and I'll explain that in a moment. But I want you to see, as I read this passage, the absurdity of their question and their absurdity to try to challenge Jesus with their attempt to make him look like an inept teacher. That's really what they're trying to do. Follow along as I read verses 18 through 27. Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and questioned him. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife behind but no child, that man should take the wife and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first married a woman and dying left no offspring. The second also took her, and he died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. None of the seven left offspring. Last of all, the woman died too. In the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be since the seven had married her? Jesus spoke to them. Isn't this the reason why you're mistaken? You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, haven't you read the book of, in the book of Mo, Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this story and this truth that comes oozing out of this attempt to trip up your son. May we gain from it in our own hearts today confidence in your power and your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You know, there's a, such a thing out there called confidence courses. I don't know if you've ever went through one. They used to be called obstacle courses, but I think that was too negative. They call them confidence courses, or there's a ropes course out there. And they're all designed to help you gain confidence in your physical abilities as well as your mental abilities in just solving certain problems. And in the Air Force, we had all kinds of versions of it. We called one Project X, and it was just a bunch of problems that these people had, to, these lieutenants and cadets had to solve. But these confidence courses are meant to help a team or a person gain confidence in their abilities, in their whatever they're doing, whatever they're focused on. But you know what? The greatest need any soul ever has in the world is to fully embrace God's power, to fully embrace his word as truth for the eternal health of their soul. That's their greatest need. And so we don't need a confidence course. We just need to read our Bible. And Jesus right here gives his, the Sadducees that very 
strong lesson. Jesus turns an absurd question, and I'm going to tell you how absurd this is in a minute, from another group into a lesson on the power of God and God's word. And from this, Jesus gives us very strong reasons to trust his word, God's word, and to trust God's power. So how can we develop, how can we gain strong confidence in God Almighty? Well, we find confidence in God by two qualities of God that we see here that Jesus makes very clear. First of all is his omnipotence. That's just a big, long, fancy word for all-powerful. Okay? The first point I got this morning is God power, power destroys hypothetical, hypocritical questions. Verses 18 through 25. I'm going to read it again because I want you to catch the absurdity of this question and what Jesus does with it. The Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and questioned him. Now remember that part. They, don't say, they say there's no resurrection from the dead. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife behind but no child, that man should take the wife and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first married a woman and dying left no offspring. The second also took her and he died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And none of the seven left offspring. Last of all, the woman died too. Here's the absurdity of it. In the resurrection, which by the way they don't believe, when they rise, whose wife will she be since the seven had married her? And Jesus spoke to them, isn't this the reason why you're mistaken? You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So let me give you a little history lesson on the Sadducees, okay? The Sadducees is another group of the Sanhedrin, another sect of Jewish teachers and leaders. They are a minority in number, but they are the majority in influence. They have more influence. They're wealthy. They're, they're well-placed in, in power and everything else. But I want to talk to you about who they are, and then we'll talk to you about what they believe, and then I want to talk to you why they're testing Jesus. So like I said, they're wealthy. They're influential. They're pro-Roman, they're for the Roman government, they're for the Roman situation because they take advantage of the Roman rules to make, oppress the people and make money. They seek prosperity at any cost. That's who the Sadducees are. Their name is only mentioned 14 times in the whole New Testament compared to the 100 times that the Pharisees are mentioned. 100 times. Most of the chief priests belong to this group which gives them power to oppress the people. They only, now here's what they believe. They only believe in the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of our Old Testament. That's all they believe in. They don't believe that anything after that is God's inspired word. So they only take the five books that Moses wrote. They don't, they don't listen to anything else. And one of the things they get from this, these five books is that, the, that humans aren't eternal. There is no afterlife. That's one of the things that they hold to very strongly. So when one dies, one just ceases to exist. We call that today annihilationism. And there's people out there that believe that, which some of them believe it because they, they, they cops out from having to, to believe in God and believe in Jesus Christ. But they believe that there's no eternal spirit in human beings. So they say, live for now. They, they say, can't, get all you can, can't all you get, and sit on the can. I mean, they are all about themselves. They are all about, how can I make more money? 
Well, they're here to test Jesus in this situation because they own the sellers that Jesus cleared out of the temple. They're the, they're the managers of that bazaar that was in the, in the temple court, the Gentile court of the temple, and Jesus has run them off. So they're there to test him because of that, because it was a source of income for them, a big source of income. And they come to Jesus, and here they're not trying to get Jesus in trouble with the Romans, like the Pharisees and the Herodians tried, and some of the scribes and the, and the other uh, groups that approached him. They're just trying to make Jesus look like an idiot. They're trying to make him look like he's inept. Like he doesn't understand things. And so they're, they're created, they've created a question. They are so confident in their doctrine that there's no resurrection that they think Jesus will be unable to answer this question. All I got to say is, oops, you're wrong. So here's the question. It's called leverite, leverite marriage. It's, it's a, a Latin term, basically meaning brother-in-law. And this is where we get the term brother-in-law, sister-in-law from, because by law, you were supposed to do this in the Jewish custom, in the Jewish law. Uh, it's basically designed, and it started in Genesis chapter 38 and was codified by Moses in Deuteronomy 25. But it was designed to keep a man from losing his inheritance to another tribe during the, in the promised land. So if he, he died without offspring and his wife married, his wife inherited his property and then married another man from a different tribe, that tribe would get the land. So it was, it was just a, a, a law that was given by God designed to keep the land in the family. That's what it was designed for. So we see it in Genesis 38 for the first time. And then Deuteronomy 25, Moses writes it down. And then we see it in the book of Ruth. Ruth and Boaz are the story of that whole situation is a leverite marriage, a leverite marriage. But it's only unmarried brothers, by the way. So this isn't encouraging polygamy, as some people want to think. You have to be unmarried brother to marry your brother's widow. So, but see, they're really, they really don't care about the answer to this question. This whole scenario they built is just to, to fog up the, the mirror so they can't, Jesus can't see what's really being asked. They're not really wanting to know because they come with a preconceived notion that their doctrine is correct, that there is no resurrection, there is no afterlife. And that's the absurdity of the question. And it presents the obvious hypocrisy to Jesus. Jesus knows what they believe. And this hypothetical scenario they've created is just rubbish. It gives away their motives. I mean, listen to this. Seven brothers being infertile, the odds of that happening are very rare. Very, very rare. Marriage in the resurrection that they don't even believe in, that's absurd. Why would you, why would you include that in there? And then there was this kind of underlying fake concern for the brothers and the, and the wife. Who, who's, going to be, who's her husband going to be in, in the resurrection? These are all phony. These are all phony conditions that they have created in their mind to try to trip Jesus up. Now, Jesus quickly calls out their motives and their erroneous doctrine. Verse 24 is the key verse for this whole passage, and we need to focus on it, and that's what we're focusing on today. Jesus spoke to them. Isn't this the reason why you're mistaken? And he's not talking just about this whole marriage thing and brother-in-law marriage. You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. You're wrong because you don't know God. And you don't know God because you've not trusted his scriptures or his power. So we're going to talk about the power first because that's what Jesus talks about first. The, God's power destroys the premise of their first of their question, of their false question. Because in verse 25, Jesus answers that question. For when they rise from the dead, they marry, nor 
are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So there is no marriage in heaven, and that's because marriage is an earthly institution given to, by God in the Garden of Eden for Adam and Eve, two perfect human beings who God wanted to unite in holy matrimony for the purpose of procreation, but also for the person, purpose of communion. God gave it to them. He made, it made two incomplete people complete in the garden. Now, sin tainted marriage after the fall, and so we have all kinds of problems with marriage nowadays, divorce, dysfunctionality, um, even people that don't think marriage is, is a necessity. They, they can cohabitate, but they don't think marriage is a necessity. So sin has ruined marriage, in a sense, from that standpoint. But all the reasons we have now for marriage... All the reasons we have now on planet Earth for marriage, they're not necessary in heaven. Some are very good. I mean, I, I enjoy being married. But they will not matter at all in heaven. Why? Well, I'm glad you asked. The power of God will make us not needed. It will not be necessary. Now, I know that may be a little stinging to some, but we'll be in perfect, absolute communion with God and his son, Jesus Christ, in heaven. We won't have a need for a companion. We won't have a need for a partner. We won't have a need for that better half as we usually refer to them. We will be ideal and whole in our bodies. There'll be no more sinful desires. There'll be no more earthly needs. There'll be no more loneliness. Praise God. Now, we'll fellowship, and I'm not taking that away. We will enjoy each other's company in heaven, but God will be sufficient for our fellowship, our communion, and our consummation in heaven. Because his power is that great. And that's what Jesus is telling these Sadducees. Don't miss that. The power of God will change us from what we are now to something very glorious and, and somebody that doesn't need marriage. He says we'll be like angels. Well, don't get crazy here, okay? Because don't, don't, don't think you're going to get wings and fly. I mean, you might, but um, I don't think you'll have wings. No, it's not in every aspect. Jesus is using us that we will be like angels in that we will not need marriage. We will not even have that desire. Now, angels are not like us. They don't have a soul necessarily. They don't get choices. They get to do only what God tells them to do. Angels are finite in number. They don't procreate. God created them at the beginning of time, and he hasn't created any more. There's no willful spirit in them. There's no independent tendencies like we have. We are not like that. But we'll be like angels in that we won't have those concerns because they don't have any of those concerns. But we won't have those concerns because the power of God will change us to not have those concerns anymore. See, our perspective in heaven is vastly different from the angels even. We have a special connection to God the Father and God the Son. A special connection. And faith is what makes that connection so special. Faith makes that connection so unique. The fact that we displayed faith until we passed, until we got to the end, makes us very special. The angels can't celebrate like we do. They rejoice when a new a soul comes to Christ. We hear that, we read that passage, that's great. But they will not be able to celebrate like we will. They know that Jesus, the Son of God, went and died and was raised. They glorify God for that because it is God to God's glory that we do. But they won't be able to have that personal connection to the fact that the Messiah came for their souls like he did for ours. 
See, God's power changes us. That this earthly, frail body that we have that gets sick and, and, and is needy, it'll change us into some glorious, God-honoring bodies like Jesus, by the way. Don't forget, Jesus came back, showed himself to the disciples and over 500 people in a glorified body. In a glorified body. It wasn't just some ghost, as some people want to call it. He was back in body form. And in the end, God's power always overcomes anyone's hypocritical hypotheticals. And that's what happens. Their skepticism and their, and their disbelief, those are just hypotheticals. You know, there's fa false challenges out there. This is one illustration of this whole point. There are far, false challenges out there. I don't know if you've ever had anybody ask you this question that you're trying to witness to or share the gospel or even talk to them about God. They'll say, well, can God make a rock big enough that he can't lift? They say that all the time. If God's so powerful, can he make a rock that he can't lift? Or this is the one that really gets me sometimes is, if God is good... By their definition, by the way, why does bad, by their definition, keep happening? Well, the problem is, is they don't understand the scriptures and they definitely don't understand the power of God. Both of those questions are asking God Almighty to contradict himself. To make a rock so big he can't lift it would contradict himself. God can't contradict himself. He never tells a lie. He never is false. He never fails to keep his word. So he can't contradict himself. And it's their wrong ideas about God's use of power that creates such errors as these. That's just an illustration. There's plenty of others. But as a way of proof from Scripture, let's, let's first think about that there is a resurrection, okay? Regardless of what these Sadducees believe, there is a resurrection. It is clear from Jesus' teachings and, by the way, his rising from the dead, to Martha at Lazarus' tomb. He's standing there. The stone is still over the tomb. Martha is, is crying and weeping and sorrowful because her brother's dead. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He asked her. And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. There's a resurrection, and we got to cling to it. we got to make sure our minds don't get so bogged down in what's going on in the mud and muck of the world to never forget that there is a resurrection one day. And then after Jesus rose from the dead, he, it says in, in John 20, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. They saw him physically. Matter of fact, there's a song out now called There's Only Scars in Heaven. I think the only scars in heaven are on Jesus Christ because those mean something. Our bicycle accident won't be on our glorified bodies. So there is a resurrection. The second thing we need to look at is that there's no need for marriage in heaven. Now, Proof of this, besides the fact that Jesus says it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, if you need more proof than that, I'm going to give you a little bit more, but when Jesus says it, that's enough for me. But here's what it's done. It's kind of pieced together from doctrines about eternity and about this life. Paul kind of pulls these things together in one spot 
In second, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, which is a glorious chapter to read about the resurrection in our bodies, but he says, someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen. And to each kind of seed, its own body. Just as, as we have borne the image of the man of dust, which was Adam, we shall bear the image of the man of heaven, which is Jesus. There are, there's more verses to show you. I would love to show you. If you want more, come see me after the service and we can talk about it. So who gets to participate in this power? Who gets to enjoy this power? How does one experience this power? Those who believe and trust in Jesus Christ. It's really that simple. That power is made available to us when we trust and believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. We will be the ones God changes forever at the end time. Salvation by Jesus Christ is completed when our bodies are completely consummated in glory. Our glorious bodies rise and go to that final heaven there. But I know, like I've said before already, the, the, no marriage in heaven may, may disappoint some of you. And I, I understand that. You hope to be reunited with the love of your life. I got that. It makes sense. Our comfort zone right now, our reality right now is in this, on this planet. We have lived a long time doing certain things the same way with certain people all the time. And we're happy with that. We're content with that. And that's a good thing. You know, I admit that it bugs me a little bit that there's not going to be any eating in heaven. But there will be eating, but you don't have to eat. Jesus ate, but he didn't have to eat. He just gave him something to eat so he could prove. By the way, there's a feast in heaven for the marriage supper of the Lamb. So we will be eating in heaven. But I like to eat, so I like having the need for it. But I don't need it. Because marriage, like the same thing, is not needed. Marriage is not needed. Because we will have no use for it. Our communion with God, our communion with God and Jesus Christ will be enough. I know it's hard to imagine sometimes that our communion with God in heaven will be enough. And if we cling to the idea of marriage on earth, if we cling to those kind of things, we don't really understand the fuller concept of heaven and our glorified bodies. We haven't grasped that. We're glad to be rid of the sickness. I know I'll be glad of that. We're glad to be rid of the pain and the sorrow, the mourning, the taxes, um, the loss, everything that we've experienced down here. We're going to be glad to get rid of that. But we want to keep the good things sometimes, and that's where our hearts are getting torn in two or, or divided. There are many places in Scripture that tell us, set your mind on things above, not on things on earth. Colossians 3.2 is one of them. Colossians 3.2 is one of them, but... There's many places we're encouraged to never forget that there is a place after this one, that there is an existence after this one. We, we can long for these things now, and there's nothing wrong with some of that, but, but when we think that we need those things in heaven, we're, we're, not, we're doubting the power of God to change us, to not need those things. We need to trust God to give us, in heaven, the very best eternal existence. That's, that's what it comes down to, just trusting that God's got our best interest in mind in heaven. He will, Jesus will not die for our sins and, and, and not prepare for us the, the best place in the world. Matter of fact, he told us he was going to prepare a place for us. 
our glorified bodies will be matched by that existence. God's power, God's power is sufficient and appropriate to bring us into eternal heavenly bliss. Paul wraps up his discussion, some of his discussion in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed. That's the power of God. Amen? So God points out that it's, they don't understand his power that his power will free them from earthly institutions, that his power is able to resurrect bodies that have been dead for centuries, millennia. And now Jesus teaches them that God's word contains the hope they have to believe that, the hope they have, that they need for the next life. God's word expresses hope for our glorified bodies. Let me read, I'm going to read verse 24 again because that's what Jesus is explaining and then I'm going to skip down to verse 26 through 27. Jesus spoke to them, isn't this the reason why you're mistaken? You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. In verse 26, and as for the dead being raised, haven't you read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. So Jesus is taking on the other part of their question in a sense, but, but, the, but the background of their question, the, the, the doctrine they have. They, they're wrong because they don't know God's word. See, Jesus is not just correcting their faulty expression or their faulty question. When Jesus corrects us, it's not just picking on one little thing. He's trying to correct our whole thought process. He wants to give us a whole new theology, and their theology was so wrong. So Jesus confronts their disbelief in the afterlife. He says, and by the way, you, you don't believe in the afterlife and in, in, in eternity and the resurrection, but let me tell you why you should. He confronts it, and he, he uses God's word from the book about Moses, which is the book, one of the books they believe in Exodus. When G, Moses is confronted at the burning bush, the one that doesn't burn up, so Jesus is using their own Bible to show them that there is a resurrection because it's there. God says, I am, when Moses asked, who are you? Who am I supposed to tell the Israelites when I go to set them free from the Egyptians? Who are you? What am I supposed to say? He says, I am who I am. The great I am. And, he, and then here he says, and I am the God of the of the, of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Three men that these Sadducees claim to believe in, trust in, claim to be part of the Jews that came from them. The very patriarchs these men, men claim as their own. So Jesus uses the tense of the verb. Now, I'm not doing an English class here, so don't panic. But the, the tense of the verb, I am, is a present tense verb. Not I was. He didn't say I was. I am the great I was. He's not the great I was. He's the great I am. I am who I am and who I always will be. So God said, I am. I am currently, I am presently Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's God. He speaks to Moses who lived centuries after these three men had died. I mean, it's been 400 years since, the children, since Jacob took his family down to Egypt. So it's at least 400 years. He's... he's 
telling Moses, I am the God of these men who have been dead 400 years or more. These three patriarchs are dead in their body, but alive in the spirit. As they trusted God for salvation and their faith received eternal life. See, they believed in, in Jesus even before they knew who Jesus was. They trusted God for eternal life. God gives his identity to Moses based on using these three physically dead men. And God identifies himself to the Israelites by that way of three spiritually alive men. Jesus declares a truth held by all Jews. This truth is that God is the God of the living, not of the dead. Now let's look at that phrase a minute. If a soul ceases to exist at their death, then God's not the, the God of nothing. But in truth, he really is the God of nothing because he made everything out of nothing. So he is the God of nothing. But he doesn't govern a non-existent soul. Therefore, God is God of the soul, which lives forever, by the way, in heaven or in hell. The soul does not ever die. And this establishes the doctrine of God's eternity. There is eternity. And so God is the God of the living, not the dead. And Jesus says their lack of understanding or, or their lack of willingness to understand why they are, this is why they're badly mistaken. They're just refusing to see, even in their scriptures, even in their books that they hang on to as primary, they don't see it. Every soul is eternal. And God is the God of those souls. And hope is found in, for those who believe in Jesus Christ, the Savior, by God's word. God declares him the Savior, and those who trust in him, their soul will live in heaven. Those who don't, their soul will live in hell. Eternal torment. It's a fact. It's in Scripture. And we're talking about God's Word, so I believe it. Have you ever noticed how the skeptics try to use Scripture to trip you up? You know, I, read in the, I had one abor a pro-abortion person try to use a, a verse, passage in Numbers to tell me that God was pro-abortion. He was wrong, because that wasn't the context of the passage at all. Not even close. Well, this is what happened in Matthew 4 and Luke 4. Satan comes out to tempt Jesus. Jesus goes into the wilderness intentionally to be tempted by Satan. So first temptation, Jesus counters with Scripture. So Satan get, thinks he's smart. Oh, I'll use Scripture to trip him up. I'll use Scripture to tempt him. So he pulls out a verse. Jesus pulls out another verse to counter that because Satan does not know God's word or the power of God. Satan pulls out another Scripture to tempt him. Jesus counters with another scripture. That's, that's what the world does. Jesus is counting on God's word when he's tempted in the wilderness. And now, right here, he's hoping in the word as well. He's putting his hope in God's word to counter the Sadducees. Isn't it amazing that the Sadducees look like Satan? Isn't it crazy? I think it's a parallel that's intentionally there. But Psalms 19, Psalms 119, the longest chapter in our Bible, Psalms 119, 176 verses, is all about God's word. The beauty, the provision, the, the, the power that's in God's word. If you haven't read it recently, go back and read it. It's a great, it's a great thing. But we, we should be quick to turn to God's word for help in any situation we find ourselves in. Paul calls us to know this. He says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed. Every, every word of it, every word of it comes out of God's mouth through men onto paper. For us, 
All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, and correcting and training in righteousness. That's what it's for. So how much are you depending on God's Word? How much is it a part of your life? Is this something you go to every day for wisdom, for guidance, for help? Now, God's Word is not going to tell you how to fill out your tax forms for the IRS, okay? And God's Word is not going to tell you how to rebuild an engine or how to fillet a fish, okay? That's not the intent of God's Word. But the Bible does contain wisdom for how to deal with the IRS and what we're supposed to do. The Bible contains guidance for growing your patience when you're facing a difficult task like rebuilding an engine. And God's Word does talk to us about our provisions and how He provides for us. Paul said it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, something we all need every day because our sin nature is constantly trying to get us to live in unrighteousness. Righteous living like Abraham, who by faith received God's salvation because he trusted what God said, what God's word told him. See, our hope is in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection for our eternal life after this one. God's word gives us this knowledge and hope. And if you're not spending time in it, you should be. Because that's where any hope you're going to have for the future, this future as well as the next future and the next life, it'll come from God's word. Not from fortune cookies or um, cute little sayings on Twitter or Facebook. The Bible is crucial for our faith. I hope you've gotten that since I've been here. It, it keeps us strong in the trials. It helps us to resist the temptations like it did Jesus. It helps to sustain our faith in persecution. I know believers that are in persecuted places right now, and they don't even have a full copy of God's Word, but the little bit they have, they've put up here, and it keeps them through that persecution. God's Word is important. And if you're not actively studying it, if you're not actively reading it, if you're not actively praying through it and applying it, then you will struggle with your faith and with your life. And my hope is that you, you know God's Word is that important to you, that you... you Find time. You find it as the best and most needed source to help you fully live out your life. Jesus is trying to tell the Sadducees that right here. Read, study, memorize, and use God's word. I guarantee it'll change your life. I guarantee it'll make your life better. Because grace is found in these pages. Oh, so much grace there. So much mercy. So Jesus destroys their silly little argument and their absurd question their petty little challenge. He destroys it. You don't know God. You don't know God's power. You don't know God's word. You just don't know. You know, we can do the same thing against our own sin. We can use God's word and God's power to defeat sin in our hearts and our lives. It starts with trusting Jesus Christ also, but then it also start, continues with reading your Bible and spending time in it and believing what God says, trusting him for his power to show up. You know, sadly, the Sadducees faded from history after the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. Matter of fact, none of their teachings, none of what they, what they had taught survived. There's none of that in existence today. The only thing we know about the Sadducees is what Josephus, the histor Jewish historian, recorded in his antiquities. And that's where we get the idea of what they believe and what they don't believe. But nothing of theirs survived after 70 A.D. It's really sad. Why? Because they failed to believe it. They failed to believe what they had 
They failed to believe that God's power was sufficient to produce an afterlife. Their legacy died because it had no faith. It had no confidence in God's word. So do you believe this morning? I mean, really, really trust in the power of God and the truth of his word? Is your life fully committed to these two things? I hope so. Let's take some time right now, though, and just pray for that in our own hearts, that our souls will find contentment and security in the word of God, in the power of God, that we can have confidence in what God has given us. If you'd like to come to the front and pray, feel free to do that. We'll have a few minutes of silent prayer, and then I'll close us out. So let's pray.